Operation Oganda come and talk to us, and I might be up too high. Um, and they are going to come, but they're visiting multiple Sunday school classes, so it's impossible to know when they're going to be here. Uh, so that we're going to go on with the class, and when they walk through the door, I'm going to shut up, and then if there's any time left, we'll, we'll go back to the class. So I'd like to welcome the visitors, and especially our friends from Bay Village, Ohio, where we spent 18 wonderful months. They came down here to get out of the cold. They were misinformed. I don't know about you all, but I don't remember a March 19th as cold as yesterday was. So in my 50 years or so of knowing San Antonio, this is the coldest it's ever been. We're in a series that began at the beginning of Lent, and what we are doing is going through the various prophecies of Jesus, not all of them, because there are 657 or so of them, but we're going through the prophecies of Jesus in sort of sections to give you a taste of what's in the Bible and what you might be able to discern uh, if you were to read all of those prophecies. We began in Genesis with the prophecies that we find in Genesis. Uh, Ron then took over and we did the sacrificial system and the prophecies that are in the sacrificial system. And then we went to David and the prophecies of the royal line of David. And today we're in Psalms uh, for the prophecies in Psalms. But I want to begin by noting to you that these prophecies that we're going to look today are by no means all of the prophecies that one finds in wisdom literature. For example, in Job, a verse that almost every pastor quotes in virtually every uh, funeral service is, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I shall stand upon the earth and see him face to face, which is an early indication of the resurrection of the dead. And of course... We believe that Christ in the resurrection fulfilled that promise visibly for us. And then in Proverbs, uh, what in the history of the church is probably one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, in Proverbs 8, we have this indication uh, that wisdom, the Word, existed before creation and was active with the Father in the process of creation, which is an early indication of the, the pre-existence of Christ. And uh, you all wouldn't read this, of course, but uh, in the Nicene debates, that verse, St. Athanasius, that verse from Proverbs 8 turns out to be one of the linchpins of Trinitarian theology. Uh, and uh, there are others in every book of the Bible. There are references to Christ and its endemic in wisdom literature as well. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm just going to be in Psalms, but believe me, there's more to know. Well, I thought I would uh, start by uh, seeing how many people had this experience. How many of you, when you were young, had a little Bible that your parents gave you, sort of a, a semi-Bible, because it had the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs in it? How many of you all had such a, had such a Bible? Uh, I used to think in my younger days as a Christian that there was something wrong with an abridged version of the Bible like that. Uh, and as I was preparing the lesson this week, I started thinking about why, why did those things ever develop? Why, and why those books? And of course, if you think for just a moment about that question, you recognize that it's because, First of all, the revelation of Christ is important for Christians and for parents wanted their children to know about the revelation of Christ. 
Uh, Psalms is the great songbook, the great book of poetry, the great book of prayers in the Old Testament, and they wanted their children to learn how to pray out of the Psalms, and they wanted their children to have wisdom for practical life, so that the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs turned out to be what they would give children so that children could grow up as mature Christians. Uh, I, I, I don't think our grandchildren have such a thing. I haven't seen them in a long time, but I think they still do produce such books. And it turns out that even though, probably in your case, in my case, my eyes are no longer able to read such small print, so I'm unable to use them. So that today, I thought, we will think a little bit about what are the Psalms and why are they so important in the Christian faith. Uh, the first thing I thought you would want to know is that there's no book of the Bible that Jesus quotes more often than Psalms. Psalms is the most quoted book by Jesus. And as we shall see, even at the end of his life, he's quoting the book of Psalms. So that it was important to Jesus. He grew up with these hymns and these songs of praises and these songs of lament uh, in his heart. And he had memorized them, probably in the little synagogue in Nazareth. And they, he could call upon them in his preaching without, from memory without any reference. Um, the Psalms are important uh, to Christians uh, because somehow, by the power of God, these particular songs touch every experience of the human heart and when we read them, if you're like me, you almost automatically put yourself in the psalm. Uh, so, one we're going to study today, Jesus prays, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And almost all of us at some point in our life have had an experience where that's the prayer we were praying uh, for ourselves. Uh, so that we naturally place ourselves in the position of the psalmist and therefore can take in the word of God in this poetry as we pray them. Uh, one of the most important things I think we can learn to do as we become more, important, uh, more mature as Christians is to learn to pray the Psalms. Um, I, I get, I'll, I'm going to deviate a little bit from the, the lesson this week every once in a while, but I think one of the things that Protestants sometimes criticize Catholics for being unbiblical. And, and I think that's a great mistake. Um, if ever you go to a Benedictine monastery, which I've had the privilege of doing several times in my life, and live with the monks and realize that they read psalms morning, noon, and night, and at every meal, and that they're constantly being immersed in Scripture, you sort of realize that that's a, a false criticism we make of the Catholic faith. Because if you go to a monastery, they basically read through the psalms every 60 days, so 150 psalms every 60 days, and six times a day they meet together to read some of those psalms. Uh, so that uh, those psalms are constantly coming into their lives and enriching their, their community, which is something we should do. The last thing I just wanted to point out briefly, for those of you who don't know, many of you do know, is that the book of psalms is not really one book. It appears to have been five books that were put together in units. Some of the Psalms specifically say they were written by David or the preposition used can mean for. So they were written by David or for David and almost every scholar thinks many of them were written by David. 
Um, and some of them are written by other people like the sons of Korah. Uh, those psalms, one believes, were written in the temple for temple worship and were part of the worship of Israel from the very beginning. Uh, so there's, you have those psalms, and then you have different types. Um, you all know that I love wisdom literature. There are many psalms uh, that are wisdom literature uh, that, that, that are, were intended to teach children. The hardest psalm to read, in my opinion, is Psalm 119 because it's so long, but it's basically an acrostic uh, that is t- designed to teach young people wisdom as they memorize this long acrostic psalm. And there are others like that. Uh, get one, another one we often quote at funerals, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may become wise. So there's wisdom literature in there. There are praises, many psalms of praise. The book ends with a whole section of praise from about Psalm 145 to 150. Um, that is nothing but praise for God. Uh, they, they have both individual laments, that is, David and others lamenting a loss, and corporate laments because many of those laments were about Israel losing their freedom. And so... They lament as a body their sins and the consequences of their sins. Uh, and then we have a very few of what are called the royal psalms. Psalm 72 is the most famous of those. These are psalms that were written to praise the king, uh, particularly Solomon um, and David. So those are what we've got. And with that, we'll go to the lesson. Um, so some. I don't know if you've got it, and I may have to read it, but someone read Psalm 110. Uh, pardon me, Psalm 2, 1 through 7. Let's see if I can get there so I won't be behind you. 2, 1 to 7. Psalm 2, 1 to 7, yes. Okay, Uh, this was not in the reading this week, but I put it in the lesson today for a specific reason. Remember that we're now only at Psalm 2, (laughs) okay? Oh, we're right at the beginning of Psalms, uh, and already there is a reference here that Christians have always looked back and seen the Messiah in. So let's go, in two weeks we'll be at Holy Week. Uh, During Holy Week, uh, the Roman governor... Pontius Pilate, uh, got drawn by the Sanhedrin uh, into uh, convicting Jesus of a crime. And Herod, the king, was complicit in that act because Pontius Pilate didn't want to have to do this, so he sent Jesus to Herod, hoping that Herod would take care of the problem, but Herod sent him back. And so Pilate was trapped. Uh, So that the kings of the earth, you see, All the Jewish authorities, all the Roman authorities, uh, 
Herod was an Edomite. He was not a Jew. Uh, he was from Edom. Uh, so the kings of the earth are now all conspiring against the Lord and his anointed to put him to death. Uh, and this particular verse happens to have been important in the New Testament uh, because when the church looked back, they saw that what had happened to Jesus was not accidental, uh, but was intended from the beginning and foreseen from the beginning that the Lord and his anointed one would be conspired against uh, and yet would be victorious. Another part of this that we, we hold on to, I think, is that the Lord laughs at this. The Lord laughs at this. How many of us think that in the end we can outsmart God? How many of us have tried to do that once or twice in our lives? <laughs> you see, human it's the nature of human beings to sort of kick against the goads, right? And we've all tried to outsmart God before, and we've all learned the hard lesson that we cannot possibly do that. Uh, once in a while, Kathy says that the Lord tricked her into marrying me. <laughs> She thought she was marrying a lawyer who was going to be rich and successful, and she was misinformed. <laughs> Actually, the Lord delights in showing us how limited we are. The Lord delights in showing us how limited our intelligence is, how limited our abilities are, how limited our foresight is. Uh, some of you know I wrote a little book about the Tao and Christianity, and one of my favorite favorite passages from the Tao says that the knowledge of a human being is like the surface of the sea and our ignorance is like the depths of the ocean. How true that is. However much we know, however much we think we understand another person or we understand our children or we understand our church or we understand our country, our ignorance is far greater than our knowledge. Uh, which should make us humble in our judgments about other people and about situations because we don't usually know all that's going on. Um, well, with that, I would like to turn to another one. This one happens to be in the lesson this week, and I've miscited it. I was in a hurry when I did my lesson, but uh, one of the Psalms says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. For the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule among your enemies. Your troops be, will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew in the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nation, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so will lift his head high. All right. Now, someone, if you will, just turn to Hebrews. Um, now, I've lost. Let me get sure I get this here. Oh, no, Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. If someone can read that for us. Somebody. It should start when the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? 
Okay. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day, no one, from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, so we have this prophecy from the Psalms, and then we have Jesus in his ministry on earth basically proclaiming that he is the revel he is the final the, the, the final revelation of this this prophecy that was made in the old testament but i wanted to go back cuz so much of this appears in other cases and places in the old testament i wanted to come back to this because many things are in this for example jesus is called a priest after the order of melchizedek in the or the messiah is foreseen to be that and of course, the author of Hebrews picks that up in Hebrews and says Jesus was the priest after the order of Melchizedek. I happen to like the, the prophecy of Melchizedek. I, we've already studied it once, but the word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So this mysterious figure was the king of Salem. Now Salem means peace, shalom, uh, which we believe to have been the early name of Jerusalem, the city of shalom. Uh, and so the prophecy is that the king of righteousness will be both a priest and a king because Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. And Jesus is alerting them that he is the fulfillment of that. Also in this, of course, is the fact that Jesus is being seen now here as the true son of David, the true Messiah who fulfills this prophecy because he as I said, existed before David. How can David say, my Lord? Well, the answer is, there must have been a pre-existent Messiah to whom David said, my Lord. So this is another little reference to the pre-existence of Christ as the Word of God before the Incarnation. Uh, last but not least, I thought it would be important to talk about a principle, I think, of interpretation that we learn from this. Every week I've been trying to give you how to read scripture without misreading scripture. Uh, one of the dangers of kind of a simplistic reading of scripture is we can try to take every little piece of scripture as inspired by God and sort of give our personal interpretation as to what it might mean. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, the classic case, I've taught so many Bible studies on the commandment of God to destroy the nations when the people of Israel entered the Holy Land. We know that God is a God of love. We know that because of the revelation of Christ so that we know that in some way it could not have been the will of God that the Jews kill all these people. God is not in the business of killing people. So that we read Scripture through the lens of Christ. We don't read it sort of Chris's private interpretation or as if each word could be read individually. We have to read back through the whole scope of the revelation of Christ. 
And when we do that, we don't read it improperly. So, how does that work out in the little passage we've just read? Did you notice about all this references to the day of battle? Did you notice that your army will come and gather around you and will be victorious in the psalm? What, in the Christian view, is he talking about? What is this army? Hmm? The defeat. Yes, it's the church. We're the army. We're the army that God has gathered around you. This particular psalm happens to appear in Revelation as well, okay? As we see these visions that John has of the ends of the earth. And uh, my, some of you might remember, I've told you before, I'm a very great fan of an American philosopher who is an Episcopalian uh, named Charles Peirce. Peirce very much disliked the book of Revelation uh, because of all the violence. I really want to write a reply to Peirce someday before I die, but basically he made the mistake of reading the scriptures too concretely and not reading it spiritually, <laughs> not reading it through the lens of Christ. Because we already know that God once came to save the world through love, right? We know that, don't we? And it's not very likely that at the end of history he won't take the same tactic in defeating Satan. The likely tactic is that God will finish human history by a demonstration of his wisdom and his love. And one of my favorite ways of pointing that out is uh, this famous vision in Revelation where a sword comes out of the mouth of the Messiah who is on horseback. I know that this man knows the answer to the question. What's the sword? Is it a physical sword? It's the word of God. In fact, he says that. So the sword by which we are called to defeat the enemies of God is not some physical sword or some physical power uh, or some political agenda that we could devise that would be smart enough to uh, defeat the enemies of God. It is the word of God, the truth of God, the love of God being proclaimed by the church and demonstrated by the church. And with that, we have the love of God come to see us <laughs> right here. So I'm going to shut up. Come on in. Um, I have the great and dear pleasure of introducing some of my new best friends, uh, Jeannie and Russ Barton. They are um, the founders of Operation Uganda, which is one of our new global mission partners, and we are so thrilled that they're here. They're going to be here this Sunday through next Sunday, so you can learn a little now, and then hopefully we'll find you at some other uh activity offering and you'll get to know them better but um i'm just going to let them tell you a little bit about who they are and how god has been <laughs> how god is moving um in their life through what they're doing in uganda it's it's amazing stuff morning guys um, morning. just want to start by saying thank you so much for having us we're so excited it's our first time in america um, and our first time to Texas, and um, so we're really excited to be here and wanted to thank you so much. We want to thank you so much for um, picking us up as one of your global missions partners, and um, we're really excited, you know, for the beginning of our relationship. So this is just a great opportunity for us to come and meet you all, um, introduce ourselves, and um, last year you guys sent a team to Operation Uganda in Uganda. 
Uh, we sent them all back, so that was a good bonus. You got everyone back. Uh, but they had a phenomenal time, and the next step and was just coming out to see you all and give you a bit of a snapshot of Operation Uganda. Um, and so 17 years ago, 18 years ago now, um, Russell and I and our family of four were living in Australia, uh, the beautiful Brisbane, um, enjoying life, serving in our local church. And um, in August, we had a house fire and lost everything. And um, Russell often says, oh, it's a good time for a spring clean, a little excessive for a spring clean. Um, but over that rebuilding period, we felt God started to rebuild something in us. And um, we didn't know it at the time, but within you know, nine months of a house fire, we would move back into our new home, resell our new furniture, and move to Uganda. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes in life, we think we go in one direction, and then God just throws a bit of a curveball in. And um, initially, we thought, we'll go for a year. You know, don't you like how you make deals with God? You know, like, we'll give you a year, God. We'll go to Uganda for a year. And 17 years later, uh, we're still there. We're seeing God do amazing <coughs> things. Um, our four kids live with us on the ground for a decade. Um, they're now all back in Australia. Um, so that's a different type of journey. Uh, we've got six grandbabies, number seven cooking in the oven, uh, due in June. But Russ will give you a bit more information about the actual programs that we run in Uganda. Well, I've been told that you guys, I mean, I'm in Texas, you, we have to greet each other first, but in Australia, I mean, our greeting is just, g'day, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and certainly in Australia, I mean, beautiful country, um, and we love our country. We were serving uh, in our local church, as Jen mentioned, and I had no aspirations to go to, to Africa, let alone Uganda. I had no idea where that was, and when God had dropped that in our heart, it was a matter of, let's look that up on a map and find out where it is. Yeah. And, um, and certainly, you know, that's been my, um, my first missions trip, and I'm still stuck on it. Um, and so, you know, over the years, God's been so good. And I think it's the, it's the faithfulness that when we do say yes to God and we say, you know, when God does prompt our hearts and the Holy Spirit prompts our hearts to, to step out in faith and to do something, you know, I'd encourage you to do that, you know, whether it be step across the street and share the gospel or, um, you know, um, or share his love in some practical way. We've seen over the years when God's prompted us, you know, he's been faithful. We've seen our ministry grow over the years. Um, today we've got just over a thousand children, orphan and vulnerable children, that are in our scholarship program. We focus on keeping um, of orphan kids within a family network, and sometimes that's with a grandmother or with an auntie, or in lots of cases with a single mum who would have abandoned her child um, had it not been for us to be able to come alongside that family and provide not just um, educational support, but also spiritual and social support services as well. And we do that primarily through child sponsorship, and we've got a table just out in the the foyer area is that what you call it, Amala? Uh, with a bunch of lobby. yeah, the lobby yeah. Uh, with a bunch of sponsored cards, and we've seen over the years uh, how sponsorship makes a tangible difference in a child's life, and we've seen these children grow up over the years, and, and now we've got uh, young people that are nurses and doctors and engineers and welders <coughs> and hairdressers um, up in the community, and have broken that cycle of ongoing poverty. And uh, we've got a couple of kids here. Um, you know, just young children now, but you know, through child sponsorship, we'll see those kids grow up and, and you know and transform lives. And when you little booklet, you've got a page there, Stephen's story, um, and you've got a QR code there. I'd encourage you to watch the three-minute video on Stephen. Um, Stephen was a, a total orphan boy, grew up, lived up, growing up with his grandfather, and um, and today he's a surgeon. 
seven years of medical school, just graduated this year, and uh, it's fantastic just to be part of transformation. And, you know, for us, our Christianity, we've seen uh, in Uganda just a practical outworking. You know, uh, you know, perhaps the book of James is more that practical part where, you know, when we see someone that's hungry or naked and we can't walk past that, you know, it's like, you know, some, a, a book of James speaks about the fact that, you know, some people would say, God bless you, well done, you know, I'll be praying for you. But for a, for, for a hungry and naked person, the gospel means food and clothing. Uh, and, I mean, we've certainly counted such a privilege to be able to, uh, to be the hands and feet of Christ in Uganda. Um, we've got so many other programs that we've been able to initiate. We do a lot of work in primary schools with scripture <coughs> union training, just teaching the foundations of the word of God to young primary school kids. So each week we teach over a thousand primary school students as well, and then also we're in the secondary schools. Uganda is one of the youngest nations in the world. Fifty percent of the population, I mean, it's under the age of 15. So what an extremely you know, huge opportunity for us to be able to you know, impact the young generation. Seventy-six yeah. percent are under the age of 25. Um, so a young nation, and uh, we're in the secondary schools running a seven-week discipleship program. Last year we put a, a put 1,200 kids through that program. This year we aim to put just over 2,000 young people through that program as well. And so we're seeing, you know, transform lives. We've got a church we've planted in Kampala, and, uh, and um, it's exploding. It's great to have a problem where your church is too small and people are having to sit outside the building. Um, and so we're seeing some great things. And, you know, for, for your church here in San Antonio, we want to say thank you for partnering with us. Um, does anyone here know the Mickler family? Yeah, well, we're great friends with the Micklers. The Micklers came to Uganda in 2006, and we'd already been there for about eight months before they arrived, and they were there for about six or seven years. So our kids grew up together, um, and we're great friends. So we've known them for about, you know, 16 years or so. We're staying with them at the moment. And so, you know, they've been great, you know, a great connection for your church here as well, and uh, great people. But feel free, if anyone has any questions, we don't want to intrude on... I'm on your service here this morning. But we'd love to answer any questions. Uh, and we could talk all day about the things that have, we've seen over the last 17 years in Uganda. But feel free. We're happy to answer any questions if you'd like. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, uh, you talked about the programs and uh, with Shine and Strength. Tell them a little bit about that because I think that's such, uh, it's a program that they do basically middle school age, yes. junior high age yes. kids um, because one of the big problems, as I understand it, in Uganda is, um, you know, you talked about women kind of being the backbone of Uganda, that there's just a, kind of that, that disconnect between men and respecting women yes. and women, you know, being empowered to... Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's so Yeah, um, we started um, a program quite a few years ago for young women, and it was particularly to teach them about, to have confidence in about who God has called them to be, and that they have, they can make choices for their own, for themselves, that they can, um, you know, make um, decisions about their own bodies, um, and then that God values them, and that he loves them, and so it's a, like an eight-week course that we take them through, um, and at the end, you have these young women who, at the beginning, have no confidence in themselves, you know, would look down 
Um, you know, and at the end of the course, these women are young women, you know, 15, 16 year olds that are confident, can stand up and um, speak for themselves and declare that I'm valued, that I'm loved, that God has a plan and a purpose for my life. And we were, and at the end, they graduate with a Bible. And um, it's a fantastic program. We saw it was working really well, but we had to come up with something for our young men. Um, because in Uganda, you know, women are, have a certain place uh, within their own communities and societies and aren't particularly always valued and honoured um, as God intended women to be valued and honoured within a community. Um, and so we, we knew we had to start addressing that with young men. Um, and so we started a program called Strength. Um, and it's real strength comes through relationship with God um, and learning how to be a, a young man and how to respect and treat women within your own communities and how to value yourself as a young man. And um, so that has, again, it's a, a, an eight-week program that we take young men on. Um, and we see where they start, and then when you see where they end at the end of the eight weeks, is quite amazing. But that's just the beginning of the journey because then it opens up a pathway that they're connected now um, to our team. They come along to other youth programs that we run and then come to church. And so we just see this, you know, you create a pathway um, and you see them start to walk on it. And um, at the end, and then those relationships are ongoing, but um, the, our Shine of Strength programs are invaluable. And I think last year we had how many young men and women? 1,200 young men and women do that, um, those two courses over the course of a year. And um, the great thing about that, in Uganda, we don't have any issues with schools not allowing us to go in um, with our programs. They're like an open door, you know, like come on in. And we don't get a lunch hour, we get a, an actual period time in the middle of a class where we can, the school will give us an hour to go in and, and mentor young men and women, yes. I just wondered, where exactly are you living and how much staff do you have? There? Sure, sure. Well, we're based in Kampala, which is the capital. And then, so our, um, we've, um, our local church and community centre is in one of the slums in, uh, in Kampala, uh, just about five k's out of the CBD. Um, and I remember when I was in Bible college many years ago, um, our missions lecturer said, there's a quote by, I think it was C.T. Studd, that you know, some choose to live by the sound of chapel bells, but as for me, I choose to, uh, to build a rescue shop at the gates of hell. And I wouldn't say that the, uh, the slum that we work in and minister in is up at the gates of hell, but you know, it's, it's close. You know, a lot of the areas, the homes there, you know, if you've got a garden shed where you store your lawnmower, it's probably a lot better than a lot of the, you know, the homes in that area. There's shanty shacks, there's no running water, no toilet, no electricity. Um, and then we've also got another area um, up, up in rural Uganda, where typical Africa, and you can imagine mud huts and you know, animals running everywhere. So it's very Africa, and we do missions trips. And if you want to come across an admissions trip, chat to Alan. I think we're trying to plan one for this year again uh, for your fantastic church. And um, our staff in Kampala, uh, we've got about 18 staff in Kampala. A lot of them are social workers uh, with a very strong... Um, all of our staff are born again, love Christ. Um, and our ethos is that everything comes out of a relationship with Christ. Uh, a lot of our work crosses over into a social work uh, aspect where... Our, um, our, um, our team are working with the household and helping strengthen the household. Lots of practical aspects that has to happen. And then in our rural area, we've got another 15 um, uh, team members up there as well. And a lot of them are teachers that are in the school. We, we, uh, we built a primary school up there. And through God's faithfulness, basically, we started with one classroom. 
And now we've got seven classrooms up there, and that school has got 1,400 children in it. And uh, it, it's um, the head teacher, or the principal, in that, uh, that school, uh, he's one of our staff members, his name is Billy Graham. And, uh, and he's, a, he's a big Ugandan man, and when he shakes, when he shakes your hand, it sort of dwarfs into his head. Um, but uh, a great man of God, as you'd expect with a name like that. Um, but yeah, that's the number of staff that we've got, and um, we've got a brilliant team. We're blessed to have such a strong team. Yeah. And by us being there, part of our ethos has been that we want to train up, you know, our Ugandans and strengthen and empower yeah. them. You know, to help be the ministers as well, the hands and feet. And we've found that's a very effective way to reach more because yeah. we couldn't reach a thousand yeah. on our own. Um, but through you know, building and strengthening our team, yeah. uh, we can continue to do that as well. And they're amazing, amazing people. They, um, I, I just have to interject because they were such an, an incredible staff and they are so, they're like a family, really. Mm. And, um, just the love and care and um, just call that they have to be doing what they're doing is absolutely amazing. And um, we got to share, um, you know, the social dials are teachers. They, they haven't talked, uh, had a chance to talk about their, um, one of the things they do is they have basically preschool care um, for young children so that m mothers um, can go, whether it's work or get be trained or whatever the situation is, um, that's just like one part of it. But um, these teachers love on these kids in such beautiful ways and we had the, the gift to get to have fun with them. Yeah. We don't want to take up more time than we're intended, so is there any, we'll let you. Thank you. Would anybody like to pray for them as we send them off? Yeah, would you pray for them? Lord God, thank you for the work that uh, is going on in Uganda and calling us as a church to partner with them and, and continue to uh, really empower this ministry by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that uh, families, kids would be built up in Christ and that your kingdom would be advanced. And uh, Lord, uh, raise up a team. Next uh, summer, to go over and uh, really be the hands and feet of Christ with this amazing ministry. And uh, keep this team over there uh, safe and healthy, spiritually and physically. And uh, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you. See you later. So, well, someone, by the way, I'm gonna, it, it says it's only 9.20, which means the class hasn't even started. Uh, so we have lots of time. Um, someone turn, if you will, if I can get back to where I want to be, turn to Hebrews 2, 5 through 8, and I'm going to read Psalm 8, and then we're going to read Proverbs, pardon me, then we're going to read Hebrews 2. So Psalm 8, which just happens to be one of my favorite, probably one of your favorite psalms, uh, reads as follows. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. It's not going to read the rest of it. It's a great hymn of praise of Christ, God the Creator, and God the Redeemer. So now, someone who has it, read the Hebrews passage. Somebody have it? Uh, starting with verse 5 to verse 8. Okay, uh, and then it goes on and says this, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything is subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There's just a few, once again, I like to give principles of interpretation. Scholars, I, I, I've read a lot of commentaries. Scholars often presume that Paul, Apollos, and others were sitting in their libraries somewhere, uh, pulling down reference books to be sure that they got everything right. And this passage, in a wonderful way, reveals to us the fact that these were evangelists. These were people that were out with people all the time. So the author begins by saying, somewhere it is written, i.e. Uh, he doesn't remember where it was written, he doesn't remember it's Psalm 8, and then he quotes the passage, uh, not actually exactly, but pretty close to what the Septuagint has, the passage. So we see in a wonderful way who these writers of Scripture were that God was inspiring. They're practical people trying to meet practical needs of ordinary people that they were in contact with day by day as they conducted the mission of Christ. And the reason I read the passage at the very end is because of this little phrase that I think you'll like. Yet at present, we do not see everything as subject to the angels, but we do see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that he might be raised above the angels by the grace of God, suffering death for all of us. Now, once again, I'm not quoting exactly because I'm blind and can't read. Isn't that the human experience? Is, is, do we see the angels in control of everything in Washington, in San Antonio, on the border? at the United Nations, in the Ukraine? Do we see that? And guess what? These authors were not deluded. They could see that too. They saw that the, by this time the Roman Empire is beginning to persecute <coughs> Christians a little bit. They see that the world is not the way God intended the world to be. They see that the operation of history isn't victory upon victory for the church, but what do what does the author, who, by the way, I think was Apollos on the side, uh, what does the author see? 
He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. He sees the love of God poured out for the world on the cross. That's what he sees. He sees that although the world is messed up, on the cross, Christ took on the sins of the world so that the world might be redeemed, not in its glory, but in its brokenness. And didn't he do the same thing for us? He didn't ever come to me in my glory. He came to me in my brokenness, right? Uh, he comes to us at, at our weaknesses, in our sin, in our suffering, in our shame, uh, in our unwillingness to, to, to do the right thing, and it is there that Christ is present to redeem us. It's there that Christ is present to redeem the world. So, if we want to be disciples, which I guess we do, we have to learn how to do that. I hope one day we'll have a little lesson about that, because I think the hardest thing for Christians in the West to grapple with, because we're used to being in charge, we're used to being respected, we're used to being the friends of those in power, is this way in which God works, not among the powerful, but among the weak, and the way God does not necessarily work in the pleasant places, but in the unpleasant places of our lives. Uh, and then that, that learning to be Christ in the life of the world, that learning to be that suffering wisdom of God in the life of the world, I don't know if it comes naturally to you, but it does not come naturally to me. I, it just doesn't. I, I don't like doing it. Uh, and, but we have to learn to do it if we're going to truly serve Christ, to serve the world in its brokenness, to serve the world in its incompleteness, uh, to serve the world in its rebellion against God. That, that first psalm that we read. Um, I want to be sure. Okay. Um, does anyone have any questions about that? I, I actually kind of prefer dialogues so then I can help people through that. It's really one of the deepest lessons of the Christian faith that does not come naturally that God came in weakness to redeem a world that was in rebellion against him and asked us to do the same thing. It just doesn't come naturally, and it doesn't seem logical. Or Paul in Corinthians puts it this way, for the foolishness of the cross is wiser than the wisdom of men. Okay, Psalm 22. I didn't want to leave today without doing Psalm 22. Um, Someone read just the first four verses of that because it's a long psalm and we may get into the length of it, but it would take a long time to read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. In you, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. Okay. Um, so this prophecy we believe to have been fulfilled in, well, it's reported more than one gospel, but Mark 15, 33-34, it records, At noon the darkness came over the whole land until three in the morning, and at three in the afternoon, probably until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a long voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, 
you know, for years, I think I somewhat misinterpreted this. First of all, what's the obvious thing that's going on here? Fulfillment of prophecy. And the feeling of abandonment of a dying man who is suffering on a cross. Uh, it so happened that this particular passage was in our small group Bible study this week, and we had a chance to talk about it a long time. But, um, you know, when they crucified people, they drove nails right here. And if you know anything about your biology, I think we have a, that's where your nerves are and that go into your hands and into your feet at the bottom so that when they crucified you, you were in agony, period. The way you could, you couldn't even really breathe. The way you breathed was by pushing up your feet, which remember have nails through them, against the cross so that you can relieve the pressure on your chest so that you can take a breath. But every time you do that, you pay with excruciating pain as your nerves shoot up your legs and into your back. So it's the most horrible death you can imagine. Um, a terrible death. And a humiliating death because they stripped him. And, of course, no Jew wants to ever be seen naked. So here he is naked on a cross in excruciating pain, slowly dying as he bleeds to death. Most people died, actually, of suffocation because they got to the point where they couldn't push up against the cross. And so they suffocated and died from that. Um, it's a terrible, painful, and humiliating death, which the Romans used deliberately to show people this is what happens if you buck us. <laughs> Buckus and you end up here. Uh, and that had a tendency to keep people from bucking the Roman system. Well, Jesus, we believe this. We, we, as Christians, we always believe that this refers to the dereliction he had at the moment in which he took on the sins of the world. And I don't want to deny that's part of what's going on here. But I do think we want to stop and think a minute about what Jesus is saying. Because often we end with the dereliction. We end with, why have you forsaken me? And non-Christians, of course, stop there too and say, well, see, he was just a die, died a terrible death on a cross, and that's all we know. When you're in pain, I might add, when you're dying, you really can't quote a psalm that goes on for a total of 31 verses, although Jesus, I think, knew all 31 of the verses. But what you might do is quote the verse to yourself as you're thinking about the suffering you're going into. And in doing that, Jesus is not ending with his own suffering because the rest of the psalm tells us that God will be faithful to deliver him. So the psalm is a prayer. It's a prayer of a man who's forsaken, who continues to have faith in God, and who does have faith that you will deliver me from the strife, that you will deliver me from my suffering, that you will not be far off, that you will come to my help, that you will come to my aid. I will yet praise your name to my brothers. It's the prayer of a man who is claiming the promises of God as well as the claim of dereliction. And often we focus on only the dereliction to realize that's not the end of the fulfillment of this prophecy. The fulfillment is seen in the resurrection. The fulfillment is seen in the faithfulness of God to his servant Jesus as he resurrects him from the dead because of his faithfulness to God even through this terrible death that he is suffering. Uh, well, what, is, what does that hold in store for us? Maybe not. Um, perfect ending to the lesson. Uh, perfect ending to the lesson. <laughs>
I think my wife is telling me to shut up. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, um, so I, one of the privileges that pastors have, once you get it, is you, you do watch people die. You do watch people die. Uh, and um, you watch all kinds of people die. Uh, you watch people that have been faithful servants of Christ for years, little ladies that have always been uh, to church every Sunday, and uh, you watch men die who may have gone to church maybe when they were children but might not have lived the life. Uh, one of my favorite funerals when I was a young pastor was a, a real rounder uh, in the city of Brownsville, Tennessee, who had not been, as far as I know, back to the church in 60 years, who... Um, he, he, he was a smoker and a hunter, and a horse rolled over on him, and because he had such weak lungs from his smoking, he, he couldn't get out the respirator. And so I, I had to give Harbert's funeral, and I didn't want to lie about what a great guy he was, because he wasn't, uh, but uh, I, I did feel like I needed to celebrate that his, his goodness, and when I began, uh, I just said, you know, Harbert Wizard wasn't here very often, and all of his b drinking buddies on the front row just broke down laughing. But, you know, Harvard at the end, because I was there at the end, uh, had some regrets. He had some regrets about the way he lived his life. He had, had some regrets about the years that he had spent basically eating and drinking and making merry. And then I remember this. This is one of my most favorite memories. Uh, I was called to the bedside of a, a man who he'd been a clerk in the local bank. He'd never had a very important job, but in the church he had a very important job. This was a rural country church, and some of you remember we used to have these things that people hard of hearing used to have that we had a little black earphone that you pressed up to your ear and you could hear the sermon. Well, it was his job to keep this repaired in a church that was 104 years old. Uh, and so this 80-year-old man would often be, I'd walk in the sanctuary and he'd be under the pews lying down sort of fiddling with wires trying to get something to work that someone had complained about. Well, he had a terrible stroke, a massive stroke, and was dying. And I've hardly ever seen a person die in such agony as he was. He was just writhing because of the, what the stroke had done to his brain. But he kept looking at me. His wife was right there and I was trying to comfort her. And he kept going... Two, three, two, three, two, three. He was saying, he was quoting the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and my staff, they comfort me. Uh, he didn't have the ability to say it, but he was claiming the promise of God that was in the Psalm and trying to communicate to his wife that he was okay, which I thought was a wonderful way for a man to go. We're all going to face that final moment. We all, we all are going to face it. Uh, and we're all going to face a certain amount of suffering on our way to that final moment. <laughs> Political, family, business, you name your suffering. We're all going to do that. And uh, we're all going to cry out in some area of our life, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're all going to do that. Uh, and we need to remember to claim the rest of the promise uh, when, when that happens to us. And I do think that's a, a great place to end. Um, there's one more we were going to cover, but I think my colleague here probably covered it excellently last week, uh, which is that in the Psalms, it is also recorded that the sacrificial system has now been completed in Jesus. 
and of course Hebrews verifies that in Christ all of the sacrifices that needed to be done for all the sins of the world were finally accomplished so that in Christ by faith we could live free of that. Uh, so that's the last of the prophecies. There are many more. Uh, if you just read Psalms every day, uh, you, you will find that you will find many references that one has to believe uh, have something to do with Christ and who we see him to be. So next week we're going to begin the last two weeks before Easter, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah and the Suffering Servant Psalms for the next two weeks. So we're going to kind of stay in the prophets for a couple of weeks. So we've, we've done the law now. We've done the Psalms or the writings. And we're going to end this with the prophets and the way they look at Jesus. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Christ, we thank you for Lent every year. We thank you for this time of the year when we pause for just a moment uh, after celebrating your birth to remember that your birth was a prelude to your great sacrifice for the sins of the world and your a tremendous teaching of the love of God and the wisdom of God that you revealed to us in every step you took upon this earth. So in the next couple of weeks as we begin to move toward Easter, please help us to focus upon who you really were. On Easter Sunday, uh, we will celebrate your resurrection from the dead and the victory we claim over sin and death. Uh, help us for just a little while to remember the cause of that death was our sin and our need for a Savior. Uh, please be with all those who are preaching today, and I know we have some of our staff that's still returning from uh, spring break. Be with them as they return to us. Uh, be with the church this week as we have a wonderful week. Uh, be with the preachers at 11 o'clock. Uh, we have a guest preacher at 11. And uh, be with Mitchell as he preaches uh, in Westminster Hall. And now, Lord, we pray together the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.